Before we get started, I want to mention a couple things. First off, I would love to have that Lion and the Lamb on loop to play every morning as I start off. That was, I just wanted to cheer at the end, and I missed our kettle drums. I don't know if, yeah, anyway, uh, but, but, you know, a loud amen was as close to a cheer, I guess, as we get, but um, that was very helpful, and that song is one I think we all need as we get to the second point of the message today about Satan's opposition. Um, when we sense that opposition, we are so blessed to serve the lion and the lamb. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was just that tomorrow night at 5.30 in the Blue Room, we begin our pastoral training. Uh, last year we did it twice a month. This month we're doing it, this year we're doing it once a month. Uh, but tomorrow evening, we'll be meeting in the Blue Room. Uh, we have a meal at that time. Um, and this year's theme is we're really, we're really focusing on the task of preaching and teaching, uh, what goes into making that sound uh, and effective. And tomorrow night, we start off with the theme, character is king. Um, we can have all the skills down, but if, if we're not walking with God and godly uh, individuals, then our preaching and teaching is going to be undermined. Um, there is a meal served, so if you're interested in coming, a number of you have signed up, uh, if you'll make sure you stop by the Connection uh, Center and let us know that you're coming, um, we'll look forward to that. If you missed the first one, it doesn't mean you can't come to others. I've already told the Sunday school teachers about this, and of course, anybody is welcome for this. It'll be good practical uh, workshop training as well as instruction on uh, how to tackle a text and, um, and then bring it all the way to uh, teaching it to others. Well, this morning we have come to the text, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, in a sermon entitled Christian Community. Uh, back in March of 2020, in the months that followed, uh, we had an, really an unforgettable demonstration of the vital importance and the priceless value of Christian community. We're blessed to have technology where we could at least engage when we couldn't gather, but we learned well firsthand that there's no substitute for face-to-face -face communion of the saints. And I still remember the first day that after seven weeks apart, the first day that we finally got to meet outside, uh, and God's given us this great campus, and we're so grateful for it. Um, first time we actually got to meet together, all together face-to-face, of course, we'd been sneaking those life groups and other groups in between, um, but all together, I mean, we were practically giddy um, because of just the joy of actually being together. It's not that we missed the big event, as I heard one pastor uh, call it. Uh, we missed each other. We missed the gathering together, um, marking one another, uh, spending time, and the, the reality is, pandemic or not, we need to understand why Christian community is so important, why it's essential to genuine Christianity, why we all need Christian community to actually thrive in a hostile world. And so, as Paul writes this community in Thessalonica whose faith is under fire, he demonstrates the importance of Christian community, and in so doing, teaches us. So, in verses 17 to 20 of 1 Thessalonians 2, we read these words, 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Three major characteristics of Christian community that, that Paul expresses here in this text. First is his eager desire for reestablishing this community with these saints that he had connected with earlier on in verses 17 and 18. And then second part of verse 18, he notes the satanic opposition that interfered with their reconnecting. And then in verses 19 and 20, he talks about the joyful anticipation of that Christian community before the Lord Jesus Himself. First, consider with me what he says in verses 17 and the beginning of verse 18 regarding his own eager desire to be with these saints of God in Thessalonica. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Paul's words convey the, the desperate pain that he and the other missionaries felt when they were driven away from the newborn believers in Thessalonica. He says, we were torn away from you like orphaned children being forcibly separated from their parents. Think of the trauma of that. That's the kind of language that he uses. He was determined that the separation then had to be short, that these brothers and sisters in Christ meant too much to him and to his companions for them to let the distance remain for long. And to be clear, he notes that the distance was in body, literally in face, not in heart. As with the believers in Philippi, Paul could say to these Christian brothers and sisters, I hold you in my heart. For these reasons, Paul made multiple attempts to get back to see them face to face. He uses words like this, eagerly, which, which has the idea of making it a priority and making haste with great desire. And he uses the common term that's used for sinful impulses, uh, when it's used of that, it's, it's translated often lust. Here the word points to just the intensity of Paul's desire. That, that term itself is neutral. It depends on the context, what it means. But it gives you the sense of the power of it. When you feel the, the, the pull of a temptation and, and it's a sinful desire, you know that power. Well, this is on a good desire and that power, that intensity he eagerly waits with great desire to see them again. We wanted to come to you. It was our wish. It was our will to come. And when you think about who the Apostle Paul is, this is actually a striking revelation of his heart. Sometimes those who travel as much as Paul did never develop solid relationships with anyone. They, they never really root into the lives of anyone. They, they like, actually some of them like the sense of having responsibility toward no one. They're always flitting from place to place. They, they like the freedom of detachment from any meaningful relationships. 
But the reality is that no one, not even those who have that kind of itinerant kind of ministry, no one thrives spiritually that way. History is full of their tragic falls from grace and their departures from the faith. We need one another. We were created for community, and it's not good for human beings to live life alone. You realize that's the very first thing that God said was not good about His very good creation? It's not good for man to live alone, and it wasn't just to, to set up marriage. It's this concept that human beings were made to live with relationship with other people. We start off in families, and widows and orphans are by definition vulnerable. Um, no matter what our age, young or old, married or unmarried, we need other people in our lives, and they need us. And the reality is that we need to take whatever steps we can to ensure that we're getting that kind of connection with people. There are different seasons of life. There are different difficulties that we run into. But we, we need to make sure that we're actually connecting with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. And a body doesn't function well when it's dismembered. His love, Christ's love, directs and pervades the entire congregation. Think about it. The, the whole trinity is involved in this. The Holy Spirit binds us together in unity. He grants the individual members gifts to be used for the good of the rest of the body. And God the Father energizes each person within the body with the power that he or she needs to benefit other believers connected with him or her. We're to use those joints of connection as a, a channel of blessing to those around us and they to us. And for that reason, the eager desire for reunion with the Thessalonian believers expresses the norm for how healthy Christians feel toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are healthy, we cannot be happy cut off from them. We deeply desire, like Paul, face-to-face -face connection with them. And for that reason, we make it a high priority and we actively pursue it. Hebrews underscores the importance of doing it this way. You remember from our study in Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's what we're supposed to be doing as we, as we get together with other believers, whether it's a meeting like this or whether it's getting together over coffee through the week or, or some meal or in our homes. As is the habit, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It's coming alongside, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The time is short. We only have opportunities, a window of time with people. I mean, if anything that we're taught by the multiple funerals that we see is that our time with people is, is you know, for a limited time only. And you never know how much time you actually have with an individual, young or old, and we want to use that time well. And we know ultimately we stand before the Lord to be healthy, we know we need time alone. Jesus taught us that. He himself would withdraw. We need time to meditate on God's Word. We need time to pray. We need time to align our hearts with God. But to be healthy, we also need time with other believers, the opportunity to invest in them and they in us, to take what God is doing in your own heart 
and to pass that on to others. It's part of what makes you healthy instead of self-absorbed. There are times when we go through traumatic experiences in life, when we need extra time alone to heal. Um, you know, when you've just been through that kind of thing, sometimes it's just too jarring to be with a lot of people. Uh, and it's, it's hard to work through that. But we have to be careful not to let that distance become our standing pattern. We're especially vulnerable in those seasons. And those who pull away from interaction with other believers will find their hearts at risk. And so let me encourage you. You might be going through a deep valley. You might need extra time alone. But let me encourage you to at least have a Christian brother or two Christian sister or two that, that's walking through this with you, and don't just, just vanish from the Christian community. And as a Christian community, it's important that when we know people are hurting and going through deep times, that, that we're sensitive to that and how we interact with them, that we're not just, you know, going up to them, high-fiving it like, uh, like everything's going great for them, but that we weep with those who weep, rejoice with those that rejoice. Over the years… I've observed, I've been, I guess, now, what, 30, 30 years or so in pastoral ministry and before that helping out in churches. Over the years, I've observed that those that withdraw do so to their own spiritual harm, and there appears to be no exception. Um, sometimes it's a job interference, sometimes it's an illness, sometimes it's they're sideways with somebody, but, but it always produces spiritual harm. Either, either there's already some prized sin undermining their sense of connection with those who love God and, and they don't want to have that exposed, or, or they become increasingly vulnerable to satanic temptation and attack. We need one another, and it strengthens us. You know, you might, you might be a pastor. You might be a, a, a teacher of the Bible. Uh, you might have some important, uh, significant, weighty position in your business or in, in your workplace or in your home or in your church, but, but you will find that you will not do well if you withdraw. I look forward to every Lord's Day, and it, it does my heart good just to be with the brothers and sisters. In fact, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2 sets this principle, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Yeah, there are some, some interactions with people that can be challenging. Not everybody thinks exactly like you do, and that can pre present some challenges, but you need that sharpening, and I need that sharpening. We need that interaction. So, let me ask you some, some application questions along this line of eager desire. In what practical ways are you making it a high priority to spend time with other believers? What is it that, that would interfere with your showing up when they gather? I mean, we can make the case that, well, it, it doesn't make me more spiritual to show up at 10.30 uh, or at 1.30 or at 5.30 or at 7.30, but it makes common sense to show up when the saints are gathered, right? You can't walk together unless you've agreed to do so. Who are the believers with whom you have eager desire to spend time face to face? 
And that leads to the final question. When you cannot spend time with your Christian brothers and sisters in person, the way Paul uh, describes it, in what ways do you express that you still hold them in your heart? If you think about it, today, with, with the technology available to us today, we have more opportunity to stay connected than maybe any generation before us. Now, texting doesn't replace face-to-face, but when you can't meet face-to-face, it's a great way to let a brother or sister know, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you. Um, I was, this verse uh, particularly struck me today, or uh, would you pray for me? You know, knowing that somebody else is in your corner Uh, It's very easy, particularly through the tough times, to feel like you're very much alone. And when you've got other people that that are checking in on you and that you can rely on to pray for you, it's a powerful thing and helps you thrive in a hostile world. And speaking of that hostility, Paul acknowledges satanic opposition in the second part of verse 18, but Satan hindered us. We wanted to get to you. We wanted to get back together. We tried over and over, but Satan hindered us. So Paul is not so naive as to think that there can be gospel advance in the lives of people and Satan take no notice. As a veteran soldier of Christ, he knows the evil one will make countermeasures. Before Paul was converted, he himself engaged in that kind of sabotage. Nor is Paul one of those self-promoting persons who claims the devil is after him whenever anyone disagrees with him. And sometimes we give the Satan too much credit, like the comedian years ago whose famous line was, the devil made me do it. Chances are you made you do it. You just responded to the lust of your own heart. Now that said, there is in fact an enemy of God and of human souls on the field. And you and I ignore that at our peril. We are not playing religious games or merely engaging in gospel drills. We are at war, tearing down satanic strongholds as we expand the kingship of Jesus to every heart that turns from sin to rely on the Savior from sin. Paul says it this way to the believers in Ephesus, who, by the way, knew very much about the occult and about demonic and satanic power. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, that you may have the power to stand against the schemes of the devil. Remember, the devil is an angelic being with greater power than human beings have. So how do we stand against them? Well, the armor of the Lord. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, that might sound like he's borrowing lines from Star Wars or that he is... He is is making church squabbles uh, bigger than they are, but actually, he's pulling back the cover on what's actually going on. It's very easy for us to look at church life and our Christian community just in human terms, just in terms of what's on the schedule, just in terms of, of buildings and budgets, and forget that this 
this is all part of a cosmic war. The lion and the lamb, the lamb of God taking away the sin of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah exercising his kingship. And we are here to advance that kingship in the earth. On occasion, we sense the evil one's sinister forces at work. And perhaps you've had some of those occasions. I know that we have. But much of the time, it's easy for us to pass through life unaware of the spiritual dangers around us. And that's exactly the way Satan wants it. When we're unaware, when we're lulled into not being vigilant, we're at most at risk. Peter warns us, therefore, in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded. In other words, you know, have your head on. Don't be like you're drunk. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I've met other folk that they have had a dose of how powerful Satan can be, and they're quite fretful about it. They, it, they, they feel like Satan is always winning, and we look at a world where truth is on the scaffold, and we, we, might, we might think that the devil is winning. Knowing that Satan is on the prowl is not a reason to go through life fearful. Apostle John told those he wrote in 1 John, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, referring to the spirits that deny Jesus is from God. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And of course, Jesus, as well as the apostles, regularly prepare people for this hostile environment. In fact, this whole letter is about thriving in a hostile world of faith under fire. So it's no news that our faith is under fire. It's no news that the world is hostile. And it ought to be no news that, that there is satanic and demonic, demonic power that is driving a lot of that behavior. What we need is the good news that in Jesus we will prevail. In our text this morning, Paul says, Satan hindered us like an opposing army blowing up bridges and cutting off roads to disrupt troop movement. Satan has made strategic moves to sabotage Paul's efforts to reunite with the Thessalonians. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what Satan was doing to hinder him, but we know, however, about some things. We know about the jealous Jewish opponents in the Thessalonian synagogue that stirred up the trouble. We know about the riots. We know about the legal charges that required posting bond. We also know generally from Jesus in John 8, 44, that the devil is a murderer from the beginning and a liar. He likes to use lies and he likes to use violence to harm Christians and to undermine gospel victories. And we see those tactics in the gospels from the enemies of Jesus. We see them throughout the book of Acts and they continue through her church history right to this day. So when you hear lies... When, when you hear violent talk or see violent action, you know that Satan is at work because these are his tactics. These are not the tactics of the Lord Jesus. These are the tactics of his enemy. The name Satan means adversary. Devil, diabolos, 
means slanderer. This gives us some more insight. At times, Satan, the devil, uses even professing believers to do his dirty work of slander to tear down the servants of Christ and the gospel work that they're doing. That's why gossip is such a sin. You're basically working for the devil when you engage in that kind of behavior. Now, we may choose to do nothing for the cause of the gospel, but we can be sure that that won't keep Satan from continuing his campaign to destroy human beings and to sabotage their path to finding hope in Jesus. And, and we learned this, that when we do engage our efforts to strengthen our bonds of relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the way that, that the gospel deserves, we should not be shocked when there's difficulty and when there's disruption. If sometimes it's like getting past tank traps, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be difficulties that we encounter. Don't let that discourage you. If anything, let it tell you you're on the right path. The prince of the power of the air who energizes the children of disobedience does not take lightly the invasion of his dark domain. He will push back, but his doing so amounts to a mark of authenticity on our efforts to live in line with the gospel. Think about the determination that Paul evidences with what he's writing here. He says, we tried over and over again. Satan was hindering us. We kept trying. And, and there's a determination that needs to rise, that there's pushback. Don't let that cow you or discourage you. Just, just keep pushing forward to live in this way. So, these application questions, what are you doing for the sake of the gospel that would actually generate satanic pushback? In general, I found that those that are most oblivious to the spiritual war that's going on are those that are doing the least. You know, if you're sitting on the sidelines, you really don't know what it's like to face the other team. And so, as you engage in gospel effort, you'll have satanic pushback. Is there any behavior or talk you engage in that strengthens Satan's cause rather than Christ's? And then what practical evidence demonstrates you are living in a way that recognizes the spiritual war going on rather than living your life purely for earthbound goals? You know, if, if, all, if all our Christian community amounts to is when we show up together on Sunday morning, it's, it's really not enough. It, it's not pervasive enough. It's, it's not the kind of community relationship that Paul is talking about here. And then finally, in verses 19 through 20, Paul talks about his joyful anticipation related to this Christian community. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting <clears throat> before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. These statements give the reason for Paul's eager desire to spend time with the Thessalonian believers. This explains why he repeatedly tried to do so. His joy and his purpose in life is tied up with these believers. His love for them rises from his love for Jesus. His labors on their behalf rise from 
his labors for Jesus. These people are not merely his casual acquaintances or his circumstantial buddies. They are the living proof of the power of the gospel that Paul has given his life to spread everywhere. They are souls for whom Jesus died. They're alive with the divine life of Christ in them that, that Christ has given to Paul and to, to every genuine believer. And the oneness that Paul feels with these brothers and sisters in Christ is a union produced and energized by the Spirit of God Himself. It's a reflection of the Trinity, of the character of God who exists in community. Three persons in one. And, and when we behave in a godly way, we mirror that kind of community. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe his feelings for him. Hope. That's certainty regarding the future. And at first, I'm scratching my head. I'm going like, wait, what has hope got to do with this? What has the future got to do with this? We're going we're gonna to leave that question hanging for the moment. Joy. We all know what joy is. Crown of boasting. This is a reward for accomplishment. You've won a race. You've won a war. You, you're rewarded with this crown. That's a reason for shouting. The way a, a sports team does when they score a goal or win an important game. The, the way people celebrate when a war is finally over and they have been victorious. And then glory. Shining splendor. The shining splendor of God and, and reason for praise. And then he brings up joy again. And then he says these remarkable words, this is what you are to us. Think for a moment about how, how big these words are, how bold they are, how bright they are, and then, and then think about saying them toward people you know. To actually feel this strongly toward them. Paul's expressions are full of emotion. And so we might step back and say, well, maybe Paul is just exaggerating. But I don't think so. He's actually talking the way parents feel when the children into whom they've poured their lives succeed and make good. The Apostle John uses similar language. And third, John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But what about that hope part? Did you note the words before our Lord Jesus at His coming? There's a future orientation to Paul's exuberance. Coming is the first century word for a royal visit. It, it means literally presence. Think of the times throngs of people gathered to meet Queen Elizabeth II in those many years that she reigned before she died. In the ancient world, all kinds of preparation were made for a royal visit. It was the proverbial red carpet, streets lined with onlookers, special presentations. To see an important ruler in person, especially think about before there was the internet, uh, or even video reels or anything like that was a special historic event. How much more to see in person the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To actually be in His presence. He has promised to return. He has promised to reward His servants. 
And when that day arrives, Paul's joy will reach full height. For around him will be a crowd of brothers and sisters in Christ that he personally served in the gospel. Part of the reason they will be there trusting in Jesus as their Savior was his dogged labors on their behalf. He was their connection between them and Jesus. They will, in the words of Jesus, welcome him into eternal habitations. For he used well the temporal opportunities and resources he had to make them his forever friends. Look, when you pour yourself in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, that the impact of that doesn't stop here. It reaches to eternity. When Paul thinks of that day of unbridled joy and crowned purpose, it, is his, it makes his heart happy, even in the midst of of the battles he faces for the sake of the gospel. It's going to be worth it all. He's fighting battles that matter. He's he's gaining victories by the power of the Spirit of God that will reverberate in eternity. His loving connection with these converts is a forever connection. And the love that he feels for them and the joy that he takes in their well-being will reach an infinite level at the consummation of the age. It will be a victory day parade beyond anything the world has ever seen. Death swallowed up by life. Sin forever gone. The rescue complete. The eternal inheritance gained. Eden restored and perfected. The king in his glory declaring, well done. There are days when your labors for the sake of your Christian community may seem thankless. You have those days even within the confines of your own family. Times of self-sacrifice, times of satanic disruption, times of grief, times of longing for reunion, times you pour out your soul. But keep in the forefront of your mind that Jesus Christ himself is well aware of how you're spending your life, how you're pouring it out for others. Your love for your brothers and sisters is not a waste of time. It is not a passing fad. It is tied to forever. It is tapping into the heavenly kingdom it lays up eternal reward that you will receive from the Lord Jesus himself who laid down his own life for these sheep and rose again to usher them beyond the bars of death into the heavenly city. He is coming back in person and his reward is with him. Jesus talked about it. And when he talked about it, he talks about community. In Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as, shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And then what is the reason that he gives? What, what, what was the hallmark of these people that marked them as his sheep? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And, and, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So, what motivates you and brings you great joy? Is it, like Paul, the people with whom you have gospel connection? And as you set your priorities each day, what place have you given to those who will matter forever in the presence of your returning Savior and Lord? And in what ways do you need to redirect your heart, and your efforts to make your Christian brothers and sisters your joy, your hope, your crown of rejoicing, your glory and your joy before Christ. Those are big words. They're big enough to live life for. And it'll matter forever whether you do or not. In these brief verses, the Apostle Paul has lifted the veil to reveal his heartbeat and reveal a life truly worth living for any true servant of Jesus. Our prayer is that his words will reverberate in our own hearts and lives and will help us thrive in a hostile world. Eager desire, satanic opposition, joyful anticipation. Look at these characteristics one more time before we close out. And what you see is not just Paul. You see Jesus. You see Jesus. And that is why his people live this way. Think about the Lord Jesus. I thought about his eager desire. In John 13, he, John records, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And in Luke 22, as he records it, he says, Christ says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Christ was characterized by eager desire for believers. And satanic opposition, I mean, that's the story of Jesus' life. From Herod the Great killing babies in Bethlehem, the temptations in the wilderness, the, the, the casting out demons, the, the attack of of Satan and then of the powers of darkness in Gethsemane, both religious and civil leaders, and then joyful anticipation. We can hardly forget those words for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to go to the cross and count as nothing the shame of it. You see, when we live this way, what we're doing is following Jesus. 
We're demonstrating that we have his life in us and we're displaying it to the world for all to see. You'll never regret it, ever. Not in a billion years because it will matter all the way to eternity. Christian community is a great gift from a God who's relational. Let's pray. Dear Father, the world talks a lot about community and dreams of peace. Yet in Christ, we actually have the power and the path to get there. I pray, dear God, that people will know we're Christians by our love for one another. That when they see this Christian community interacting, they will see Jesus. Lord, may we each grow in how we value this great gift from you. May we recover that created purpose that you've given to us and that you've restored to us in Jesus. May our Christian community be characterized in the same way that we find in our text this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.